<laughs> no comment on yes. All right. Well, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. No, we, we've, we've helped each other out. Absolutely. Um, oh, well, I, I, I am, I'm sorry. I qualify that. What I mean is like more, I don't mean like, you know, can you paint that face for me? I'm, I'm under, <laughs> I'm under pressure. But, you know, just preparation and, you know, the sort of stuff that doesn't, you know, doesn't require your own particular, uh, what you bring to it, you know what I mean? Absolutely. We, I think we have a, absolutely helped each other out. Yeah. There's a, there's a, I think the way we reconciled a lot of this is at first, we, uh, we don't, we don't really need to anymore. It's not like a big issue for us. But um, at first we were like, you know, the old masters, they had people working on their paintings. Yeah. And they would mm-hmm. come in and just dial it right in, you know. And, um, and so we understood, we understood that from the beginning. And then, uh, again, to go back to us ha- and prioritizing our marriage is that – I know this sounds corny and trite, but it's kind of like an old pioneer couple is um, we are out here. This is our little homestead. This is our little ship, and we are trying to make it all work. And so mm-hmm. when you're under the gun with deadlines, whether it's Candace's deadlines or mine, we're doing – we both have faith that we're doing everything we can. And so when you see your wife or your husband extend themselves completely and they've got nothing left, of course, of course you jump in and help out wherever you can. And we just try to make sure that we get things done and um, and help each other along because it's – it's not easy sometimes to deal with um, some of the pressures of just, well, just life <laughs> yeah. and also our careers, you know. Yeah. So. Um, that doesn't sound uh, corny or trite at all. It sounds lovely to me anyway. Well, thank you. Um, now, being an artist can be a very uh, con- all-consuming business, as you know. Like when I was talking mm-hmm. to Gregory Mortensen, he was he was saying that uh, when he was getting ready for his last show, um, he he uh, ran into timing problems, and he ended up working like 14 hours a day, and only saw his wife and kids in passing. Um, how do you divide up the just the domestic necessities of life? Uh, you know, like. <laughs> like, like is it a, you know because you, you know you could both be in your own studios and you're like uh, you know I, I can't make dinner right now I'm in the zone and you're like well yeah well I'm in the zone too so you know like how do <laughs> yeah, how do you work that out I think the you conversation you just made up is uh, is probably uh, almost a daily conversation <laughs> over here which is great I mean it's one of the reasons I'm so uh, happy to have married um, a fine artist is like if if the dishes are piling up and dinner isn't on the table and, um, you know, laundry isn't that done and the floors haven't been vacuumed, we're not, like, staring at each other like, what are you doing? You're not holding up your end of this bargain. Um, we're we're both, uh, I guess you could call us both workaholics. I mean, our, our daily life is um, dominated by art, you know, by working in our studios, and we – need a lot of uninterrupted time for and and like you said there's moments when you're in the zone and you just need to keep going until you can't continue on any longer that night uh, oil paint has a drying time and when it when your palette's fresh and you're moving right along on something you you better just keep moving because that's a that's a fortunate position to be in and other nights you know it's like oh the paint's sticky I'm having trouble on this passage. Maybe I'll just quit a little early and uh, make dinner, uh, do some house things, pay those bills, you know, take care of all those other life necessities that are always um, just 
pushed back a little bit uh, from where they probably should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Ignored in the corner. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say it's a... I can't say it's a science. Um, it's more like uh, like dancing. Um, you, it's an organic thing, and it's based on what your priorities are and what's what's happening at at the moment, of course. Um, but I, I I suppose any couple goes through this. Is you you're of course we work hard, and of course we I, I'm I'm eternally grateful. I mean I I could not offer Candice the things that I'm. A nine to five with benefits could offer a family um, or a spouse um, in the in the er, especially in the earlier trajectory of building an art name and a reputation and a career, and she understood that. Um, and and for me, I, I just knew that was going to be very rare. Um, and so our our working schedule around the house, we did have to talk about it. And at first, you kind of feel like you can just go about it intuitively. And then you realize, okay, <laughs> all right, you know, we, we need to start, we call it adulting. You know, we need to start yeah. adulting a little bit and, and growing yeah. up, making sure that yeah. this little boat carrying us um, doesn't, yeah. doesn't uphold because um, some of the practicalities of life. And and then you realize you want those things. You know, if you, if you go without, if you go without physical health, um, without money, without, um, human connection, you know, with family, um, uh, obligations to others, um, and you live solely for yourself. Um, whatever my impulse of the day is for getting in the studio, um, sometimes it can help you, but I think it can be a kind of illusion. I think after a while, you you get lonely for for people. Um, you also wish that you could um, uh, do do more things. Uh, with your spouse and with your loved ones and be there for them in, in at least to some measure. You would like to have a cleaner household. Um, these are all things that are part of self-care that that I think um, establishing a good regimen around the house became important for us. Um, but trust me, we've been through the extremes. I mean, we've, yeah. we've been so buckled under pressure that there's just no way I could ask her or she could ask me to stop for a second. But you know, after a while, you, you know, there are certain things that you just start gaining a certain degree of wisdom about. And and, the, and wisdom to me is just balancing um, all, all of the all of the things, the pressure, the desire to make something great, um, the, pra- the, pra- the pragmatic solutions that you have to find to make sure that your house, the power's still on and bills are paid and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like a child compared to, um, like, people that I know that have normal jobs. Oh, uh, man. Our siblings <laughs> who all yeah. have, like, homes and, and children. Like, we don't have any children. That's one of the things that we have um, not made the time uh, for yet because we've been so strenuously uh, pursuing our our art, you know. And, yeah. and, and it's really difficult to see everyone else um, around you just have um, – solid jobs and and they've bought their homes and they've had their kids and life is moving marching forward at a real regular understandable pace for them and um it doesn't look the same for you as an artist uh it's like you your measurement of success is um it 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 can't be measured by the same things and 
not everyone's going to recognize that you've that you've been successful in your field. Um, it's not it's not it's going to look like you're a loser to a lot of people, um, <laughs> and to other people they're going to say, "Oh my God, how did you ever manage?" You know, you're you're amazing, and and it's it's just crazy. I mean, it's like jumping from ice cold water to uh, a sauna. Like we'll we'll be around family and uh, other people, and they'll you know we're we're kind of like the the ones that haven't gotten their stuff together in their lives, and then we'll go to an art conference, and it's like, oh man, put them on stage, and it's just the most bizarre <laughs> thing I could imagine. It, it freaks us out. It really, yeah. is weird. I, um, I think that it uh, it creates a you know we we jokingly say that that it's. It's like you shoot us up into a capsule into space, and uh, when we come back, everybody's five years older, um, yeah. and you see life happening in these leaps and these time warps. And I see my nieces, and nephews, growing up. Yeah, and so I, so I think one of the things that happens, and this is why I love talking to other artists, we both do, is that um, I think it creates a certain kind of longing um, that comes from very poetic souls. Um, I think you hear it in writers and poets. I think some people even drink to kind of get away from that feeling and do lots of horrible damaging things to themselves. And there's a long list of those artists, I guarantee you. Um, Jim Morrison and, and <laughs> many others, right? And and I, I, I understand it. I'm not saying I'm right on the precipice myself, but I'm saying I, I, I get it. You know, there's so many there's so many pressures. Um, I think I think it connects to um, some some of the um, transcendentalist ideas of not conforming and, and kind of finding your own essential self, right? Um, well, a part of that is trudging forward into uncharted territory. And whenever you do that, I think it does create a certain amount of break with others, a certain amount of anxiety um, to kind of pursue your, your own um, um, principled uh, desires. And, and it, it can be lonely. It can, it can be a really lonely endeavor, and I think that's just integral to a vocation, a, a, journey, a journey that will transform you. Um, and that's not always easy to deal with, but um, but it, it's life, in my opinion. It's it's uh, it's something that um, I think our work perhaps draws a lot from, um, undoubtedly, actually. Um, and, and it makes the moments that you do have with people that you care about um, even more poignant and, and, yeah. and significant in some ways. It's yeah. very concentrated and poignant when we do go out and we have these experiences. It feels um, it feels like going from darkness to light. I mean, you just you're you're, you're experiencing so much in uh, such a short period of time. When when for the last three four months you've been in one room, your studio, or, you know, in front of an easel, I mean, you're experiencing very little life. Uh, so when we go out and we, we see people and we talk about things and we, you know, it hits us um, like the beauty of a sunset, you know, and it's it's really great to get out and um, to experience life and let let new ideas form and, and they they come fast and furious when we do. We always get new ideas for work. So, uh, but you know, it just takes so long to uh, actually make the art that we have to dive back into the studios afterwards yeah. and <laughs> yeah. out on another year of life. <laughs> <laughs>
trying yeah. this year we were like okay this is our these are life goals let's adult more let's try to live more and like schedule time stuff like maybe we should take a day off every week something yeah. like that you know um we're we're trying to um orchestrate this this whole thing make it make it more normal <laughs> it's like a big victory if we make it out to a to a um saturday night movie we, we look at yeah. each other and we're like, we made it look at us look what we're doing and does the situation ever arise where you meet somebody new where you're out and you meet somebody new and you both want to use them as a subject for a painting like do you, do you oh. call dibs on each other <laughs> all the time <laughs> <laughs> We'll even say like, oh, I, did you, I just saw that that person over there, and I have an idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in case yeah. you have to, do it, I have all, I have one as well. <laughs> yeah, and if and if you didn't have the idea, but like if Candace says, oh yeah, that that person's face, I just want to paint them so bad, and I didn't think of this first, I will still say, oh yeah, I was totally. <laughs> thinking, <laughs> Sometimes we do use the same models, and and we have we're pretty. We're we're fine with that, and um, we we I always look at it totally like, understand. <laughs> I always look at it like if you met Candy, um, you would know undoubtedly what her personality was like, um, and the richness of who she is as a person would come to bear, and. Um, and I think if you met me, you, I, I'm undoubtedly not Candace. <laughs> I'm not anybody else. I, I am me, and I, I figured that I figured that the same thing is going to happen inevitably in our in our work. Um, yeah. So if we see the same model and if we paint about similar themes, well, naturally because it's part of our life together. But at the same time, I have no fear about uh, our unique voices shining especially over the course of a long time i think yeah just like getting just like getting to know people you get to know artwork and yeah. um and you really become a student of the differences and the uniqueness of, of each person's vision yeah we we truly believe that uh artwork is the expression of a unique soul and that um the truer that voice can come across um the easier it is to see the differences in, in each other's works and everyone's work. And I I look at works of art and I feel like I get to know the person who made them and also the person that they were painting. Uh, when, when it's really good work, I, I can see that in it and experience it and I love that and I truly believe that that is their, the signature of the soul and every person's work of art. And... Um, so we, we don't really fear being too close to each other in subject matter or style or anything like that because we, we just believe in the power of um, art to express deeper, un, unseen parts of humanity. Right. Um, you both speak about the intense uh, sensitivity of artists and, and how it gives you like a heightened awareness of your surroundings and it allows you mm -hmm. to notice uh, things other people might not and then you also talk about how it can make you feel very raw and vulnerable um, mm -hmm. so you've mentioned it a little bit but is there anything that you do like to self-care as I think you were saying Julio like that you you know to manage that kind of uh, sensitivity mm -hmm. like, what I'm asking is because if you happen to have a difficult day in the studio 
Like, yeah. if, for me, I can go out and I can talk to my wife and she's having a completely different life and it's it's an escape in, in a way for me. Yeah. But you two, uh, if you both happen to uh, have, be having a difficult day, um, I wonder how you manage that. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. That's a good question. Um, I, I think that... I think that over the years, and I, I'm speaking from experience of doing it very poorly, um, but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not managing that anxiety very well. But I, I think over the years, um, Candace and I have realized that community is, is very important, um, and and activities are are really important, and and being able to um, to know yourself and to know when you're starting to hit. Um, overly stressed or frantic point. And it is a law of diminishing returns. I, I don't think that genius is this um, thing that you can just tap into whenever you you feel like. I, I think a lot of times creativity just comes down to, to hard work. Um, but your body and your mind and your psyche, it, it really can only take so much before you have to replenish it for for the sake of sanity and for new ideas and a lot of good things. And so whenever... Um, I do have Candace to, um, uh, she, she's really good about doing things like gardening and other activities. Um, for a while there, my life was solely painting and trying to meet deadlines and there was no hobbies. And I realized that those things were slipping away from me. Um, and same with my connection to other people, just, just realizing I hadn't talked to people. I hadn't called people in a long time. And that's real. That's, that's just what happens sometimes. And, um, and if we're both having a bad day, um, we try to do things like go for hikes. Um, hikes are great. We have two dogs. Well, we did have two dogs. One of one of our dogs <laughs> passed away recently, which is pretty sad. Um, yeah, we had her for a long time, and she was great. But um, her son is still around, and he's he's kind of the the prince of this house. He just lounges all day. We work. <laughs> yeah, you get to enjoy the life that, uh, yeah. <laughs> while we're working. <laughs> but um, but we, we we are doing a lot more things like hiking and scheduling time to see family, um, calling people. You know, having a network of of people that you can run ideas by, just tap into their life a little bit, um, be there for them. I and that's been an important thing for me is to. Um, I've heard it said before, but. Art requires a certain amount of obsession, and it also requires a certain amount of self-obsession. And it's really tough to get past that um, at times, especially if you're just accustomed to indulging in that every time you get the impulse. So for me, it's, it's really important to try to tap into what others are doing um, and to feel um, as though I'm being somewhat of service to, um, to them in some way. And sometimes that means just listening and hearing what they have to do. And it does me more good than it does them. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't want to turn into an Emily Dickinson where people talk to me and they're like, wow, that was intense. I never want to talk to that again. <laughs> yeah. I guess a lot of times if we're working on deadlines and that means that we're not, I mean, everything else drops off. We don't see anybody for months. And, uh, you know, when, when artists do that, or at least when we have done that, um, we get kind of weird when we meet people in person afterwards because it's it's like way too intense. You know, it's it's super overwhelming for us, and and there's way too much intensity in even a casual conversation. And um, and you know, it just if if we just 
went out and talked to the neighbor uh, three times more uh, in that past six-month period. You know, if we had, like, four more conversations that were casual, then we'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, casual conversation. I understand. I understand what it is. <laughs> I get it. I get it now. I can stop being a freak. <laughs> so, we, so we just, you know, it, it all feels so intense when you come out of um, like the deprivation zone. <laughs> so... Like with your um, creative heroes, do you do you have are they all the same? Like do you share the same creative heroes, or do you have ones that really stand out as being different from the other? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, what do you think, Candice? <laughs> I think I we think, share a lot of them. I think we share most of them, um, but maybe, but maybe I really am drawn to some for reasons that are unique and Julio might be drawn more to others that I'm not so drawn to um, for reasons that are unique to him. Um, so I think we, we both admire all the same artists, um, but for slightly different reasons and different intensity levels. Yeah, I think when we do have differences, um, one of the things that I've always found uh, really enlightening and uh, beneficial to do is... Um, well, well, sometimes if I don't see something in an artist and it doesn't really strike me as significant or, or moving in a, in, a, in a particular way, um, Candace will quote-unquote pitch me on that artist a little bit. It's not all salesy. It's not like you're trying to somebody into uh, doing something that's going to be harmful or, or um, detrimental to themselves. It, it's... It's her looking at the artist and saying, well, look, these are the things that I see. This is the value that I find in this artist. And this is how it moves me, right? And when she says that, I think that's just one of the most essential kind of teaching moments. That's the most elemental relationship between a teacher and a student. And I get to be a student for a little bit and, and listen to it and really um, put my brain uh, there in that headspace and kind of um, look at it with different eyes. And when I'm able to do that, there have been there have been plenty of times where I'll say, you know what, you're absolutely right. I, I never would have looked at that piece in that in that light. But when you say that, um, I feel like it's there, like it's uh, like it's there to be felt, um, rather than, um, well, I'll just I'll just put it that way. Is that she'll sometimes turn me into really liking artists and seeing an artist in a way that I never would have looked at before. And I'll do the same for her, you know. I'll pitch her sometimes, and uh, but but sometimes Candace will say, "Okay, that's enough pitching me." Uh, <laughs> 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 Who doesn't like this artist? You know, so <laughs> I know when to drop it, man. <laughs> Walk away. Are um, are all your creative heroes artists? Mm. No, no. Um, no. I, I I'm intensely drawn to um, certain musicians and um, composers like uh, I could listen to Beethoven all day every day it's just so profoundly moving um, we all both respect literature and read a lot we we try to read a lot used to read a lot I feel like at this very moment I'm not reading as many books as I want to <laughs> but um, gosh uh, we take great inspiration from uh, storytelling in in all different creative forms i i really i really like most of the arts 
<laughs> I we love going to the movies. We're very inspired by um, cinema and the way that it can illuminate a, a story in a certain way. And then writing illuminates a story in a whole nother way. Mm. Uh, art illuminates a story in a certain way, whereas music will um, do it in a profoundly different way. And all of these arts have have something about them which the other cannot do and um they're very powerful ways of expression dance uh we tried to get into opera i've only been to one and uh i i do want to go to another but the one that i did go to it i didn't really pull me and i was kind of disappointed i thought maybe i'd like it more than i do (laughs) but but i do like the ballet we, the we one Beethoven to, opera, the only Beethoven opera, which I've heard is not, you know, grand uh, in the in the world of opera. He wasn't known for it, so right. maybe maybe that's why. But <laughs> uh, I think that knows? there's um, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of um, different um, perspectives and things that just that strike you and and um, for, for for me there's the um, the writings of of Thomas Aquinas, I'm, I'm not, I'm by no means an expert, but one of the things that always moved me um, from his um, his ruminations were was this idea of this lament that he had at that time um, that his parents only cared that he was able to practice the, the good art of rhetoric. Um, that, that you know, for them that was for him that was his means to making a living, um, but that there was a difference between um, excellent. Uh, rhetorical devices and great speech making and actual belief, right? So whatever your belief is, um, I always related that to the vocation of, of of being an artist and following a vision that you claim to care about deeply. And a lot of artists claim to care about this artistic vision deeply. And so if I care about those things, then it should structure the, my priorities and my sensitivity to those things accordingly. But I think with the pressures of the art market and the art world the way it is today, it's very easy to sacrifice those on the altar of celebrity or stardom or fame or making a buck. And I think more than ever today, things like that really move me because I think in today's world, we see a lot of, um, like Andy Warhol said, the 15 minutes of fame. And that that somehow has become the crown that um, that has huge sway on our culture at large, and so it fields for um, behaviors, activities, and priorities. It fields for a culture um, uh, of artists that really are prioritizing that that kind of stardom and, and fame and celebrity as it's defined by pop culture. Um, but if if you're looking at somebody who's outside of this era, which is why I like reading more historical figures, is you get a whole different perspective on life and a whole different set of priorities. So here you have this guy who's basically, whether you believe in um, that same spiritual divinity or that paradigm for spirituality, he's pleading to something that transcends this world, the, the, the known world here. And he's he's saying, this is my true heart. And my true heart is that I have learned how to deceive people or to speak well, but that doesn't mean that my words carry any validity or weight or integrity. And I think as artists, that's just, I mean, how does it get more essential than that? Is it, we have, we have 
we have a way to paint and to communicate through our work that can either be glib and facile. Um, you can pick up on a lot of trends intuitively and spreading those trends really quickly. Um, or you can go on this journey that's perilous and difficult. It might bring you some great reward, but it might not at all. But the rewards are of spiritual nature. Um, and it's going to require that you put a lot of effort into self-knowledge and self-discovery. And there's going to be a lot of lines that you set for yourself that you can't cross um, because you 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 care about what it is that you're saying. You care about how you how you paint and how you depict these people in your work. You care about another human being. You have sympathy. It's not a cynical endeavor for you. Um, and so someone like Thomas Aquinas and and um, and a lot of the transcendentalist writers, you know, Candace and I, like we said, um, reading Thoreau, uh, Walden Pond, plumbing the depths, right, sounding the pond, seeing how deep it actually does go. Um, these are things that people do all the time. And as you get older and you get more experience, um, as you know, um, <laughs> you, uh, it becomes even scarier and scarier to do, actually. <laughs> sometimes you don't want to see what's at bottom. You know, sometimes you don't want to look at your own, um, your own uh, inequities or frailties. And um, I, I think that can become kind of, um, uh, it can petrify you sometimes. It can, it can scare you from, um, from, from being free and pursuing that. And it's a lot easier to just choose an alternative path. And I think that goes back to what I was saying about the early parts of our careers where it's, it's like, you know, there's a lot of trends in the art world. Um, there's a lot of fads that come and go. And it's really easy to hop on board and to start um, becoming a bad imitation of other artists. But, um, but really, uh, eventually, you kind of have to come to grips with yourself and what it is that you care about and what you want to paint. And I think accepting that is just is the biggest deal in the world. That's the, that's the one thing that I would wish for any artist that I talk to and for each other is that um, we gain some kind of measure of satisfaction from the honor of being able to embrace what it is that you really are and to use your skills to the best of your ability to do so. All right. Very good. Um, Candice, in your uh, bio, you have this lovely line where you talk about searching for comfort and familiarity in the sublime unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, how's that going? <laughs> Still searching. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. I think I think um, I think the beauty is in the searching and constantly seeking um, that little ring of truth, that little uh, feeling of similarity in the world, um, in other people, and in moments where you feel like you're not a complete stranger to it, but you're a part of it, that you that you belong, um, that you're entwined in a real deep way, that your roots and, and their roots uh, are in the same soil and... and taking the same nutrients. Uh, right. It's, it's a bit of a spiritual journey, an existential um, 
journey and just just what's called living but I guess us artists just think about it too much <laughs> like yeah. most people number one don't really know about or think about the sublime unknown and then yeah. of the ones that do they want to run a mile from it because it's you know unknown so it's kind mm-hmm. of scary and yeah. so like to actively be looking for the comfort and familiarity of it is a beautiful thing I think yeah. um um, I like I like knowing that there are mysteries in the world. I I'm very comforted by the fact that there are things that we will never be able to know, and that that is that is to me very beautiful. The complexity of another layer under another layer under another layer that that no matter how wide we look into the sky or how um, much we can magnify a micron <laughs> we will never see the end of it there's always more and more and more and I feel like um, everyone everyone's souls are like that that every moment in time is like that that there's there's always a deeper um, richer understanding to be to be seen or glimpsed or even just hinted at and that that is um something that draws me into um making art on a daily basis i mean that's that's some of what i try to express is that you're seeing this painting of a of a figure and yes it is this person that i have known but it's also not this person it's this other person that um that maybe someone um, around the world knows some of that person. And it's also who they once were and who they wished to be and who they'll never be. And there's so much there in every in everything that, um, that for a creative mind, I think that's always comforting. It's just the potential of, of what every moment is. Right. Lovely. <laughs> um, right, slightly different topic, different direction now. You both work in a variety of different mediums, uh, which I think would be of interest to the artists who listen to this. So I'll go through a few quickly, and if you can just tell me one tip to pass, that you could pass on for each medium that would have saved you a load of time and heartache <laughs> if you'd known it before you started. Right? Mm-hmm. So let's start with painting on copper. Okay. Um, uh, don't bother with garlic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's another one. Don't bother with lemon juice either. <laughs> yeah, yeah a, a light sanding and a very fine grit sandpaper will create enough tooth for a mecha- mechanical bond with your first paint layer. And that should be enough. So as long as you have that mechanical bond created with the light sanding, um, then your painting should hold up and just be sure to seal it well with a nice varnish. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Uh, egg tempura. Mm. With egg tempura, uh, I think a good tip for that is um, that most of your, if you're if you're going to choose a painting to be in egg tempura, uh, choose one that has a lot of interest in the darker uh, tones because that's where 
the interest in egg tempera really, um, really is. It's not in the lights like an oil painting. It's the exact opposite. You get such rich, beautiful uh, layers in the darker areas. Yeah, I would say in egg tempera, um, there's a premium on on establishing uh, a very strong design and composition beforehand. Uh, it's an unforgiving <laughs> oh, yeah, in terms of making changes <laughs> on the can- unforgiving oh. in terms of making changes on the on the canvas or on the run. Um, you 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 really have to look at it like um, like your your composition is very solid and really well understood in terms of where things are in space, where the values are, um, before you transfer it onto your final panel. And you, yeah. I do an, an ink underpainting, traditional ink underpainting before I go on. That's not necessary, but either way, as soon as you establish those early um, shapes, they're there for the long run. So Yeah, so make sure your drawing is good to begin with, yeah. and it's not one of those, well, I'll find it towards the end. No, find it yeah. and get in, yeah. and then build your egg temper on top of it. Okay. It's very design-oriented. It's not like um, atmospheric uh, in the <laughs> sense that the painting is, where you can just take a big brush and start chunking in different values. So. Okay. Uh, etching? Etching. One tip, huh? <laughs> uh, how about learn from a master, which I haven't quite done yet. <laughs> I'm learning as I go, so I'm learning everything you should not do by actually doing it. And, um, boy, you know, that's how you learn, I guess. But it would be sure nice if somebody just said, don't do it. Don't do that. Do this. <laughs> so, yeah, take a class or two. Uh, painting on aluminium panels? Um, I would say, let's see here. Um, Get the aluminum panels that come uh, coated with the polyester primer on there. It's designed for metal, so there's no worry about it um, lasting on the actual aluminum. And you can just sand that very lightly. Don't sand it down to to expose the aluminum. And yeah, and once you sand it lightly, you've created enough to to put what, whatever you want on there, your primer, or you can just begin painting on it. I prefer putting a primer on there first, just to give it a nice surface for the painting to um, to go on. I, I don't really like the way the polyester um, a primer that it comes with feels. So yeah, just the light sanding, and you're you're pretty much ready to go. It's not it's not too difficult. Okay. Uh, encaustic medium. Haven't done too much with the the heat activated encaustics, but we have worked with the water mixable encaustics that are um, created by Natural Pigments Company in uh, California. And with those, um, gosh, you can you can use them in the beginning like like watercolor, but eventually um, you can build it up to be a little bit more like oil paint layers and um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it is that you can burnish it with your fingers uh, when you get done so you can get uh, different areas that are shiny and, and matte mm. so I like playing yeah. with that or a silk, uh, a silk scarf would do it too mm. yeah and same with egg tempera actually on that okay and uh, painting on marble uh, be careful what stone you pick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
gosh, painting on marble, that's, yeah, Candace just said it. Uh, the stone is everything. It's the foundation yeah. for the painting. So if you're picking a stone that has um, a really closed-off surface and is super shiny, um, then you're going to have to put some uh, muriatic acid on it, a solution of muriatic acid. Um, we use, uh, I think, uh, 1 to 10, uh, 1 part muriatic acid to 10 parts water, and that will cut the gloss off. I forget how much time we put it on for. I think it's like 2 to 3 minutes um, we sponge it on. But this aspect of it is super important is that that will change according to what kind of stone you get. If you want a really lumpy stone that's very porous, um, then you, you probably don't need the muriatic acid. Um, but you'll have to watch out how it absorbs the, the paint, and you're just going to have to work with it. Either way, it's going to adhere. It'll be fine. But the different textures and the different absorption rate is largely determined by what kind of stone you get. Yeah, like when I'm picking out marble and I, I'm looking at it, it might have different colors like pink, gray, green, white, all mixed in with one single piece of marble. And what I've come to understand is that veining in the stone will show up in the way, in, in your paint layers too, because um, the areas that are very, uh, very white, and reflect a lot of light back at you when you're looking at the stone. Um, those are absorbent, and the areas that are more glossy and more transparent are less absorbent, and it will, in the same stone, there's areas that will um, be really slick and really absorbent. So it's, it's going to suck the oil out of your paint in some areas and leave it sitting on top in others. Um, it'll all work out in the end, but you just have to fight with that. <laughs> and so I, I would highly recommend that you don't pick out a stone that is really transparent. If you hold it up to the light and you can see through it very easily, that's going to be a difficult stone to paint on. It's going to give you a lot of trouble. All right. And the copper and the aluminum and the marble, were they easy enough to source, or did you have to find them in special places? Um, we found the copper from... Uh, Online print, print uh, printmakers will use copper plates, um, so you can find it there. Um, we found the aluminum from a company that works with. Um, they make they they have products that all orient around signage yeah. and industrial signs. So if there's something like that, if you live next to a, a major city, or even if you live in more rural areas, you might have something like that where they provide all these materials for outdoor signs. They'll they'll usually have their dye bond or aluminum panels. Um, sometimes it comes by different names, so just just try to ask. It's it's a, a, a aluminum with a thermoplastic interior, and um, and what was the third one? Marble. 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 Oh yeah, just a, any tile company, any tile store. Yeah. Mm. You can go there and find some little uh, twelve by twelve by twelves. Um, yeah. We have a, a wet saw, so we're able to to cut them a little bit uh, more custom to our liking, but. You can find them there, and you can find some really great deals um, for stuff that they discard or have in the back room. Yeah, if they only have 15 pieces left, nobody's going to um, – not very many people are going to need only 15 uh, pieces of a certain type of marble. So, right. you know, they'll sell them at a discount. And uh, you usually uh, – marble is so heavy that, um, I mean, you could work larger than 12 by 12. We've done up to 16 <laughs> inches, but – but, I mean, honestly, you're going to have to drill into some uh, studs in the wall in order to hold that thing up. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's, and the, you want to work small, basically. Yeah. <laughs> also, 
for the backing. A lot of people wonder about the backing. Um, Gorilla Glue does everything great. <laughs> it works. It works perfectly well. So if you if you take um, some some one by two strips of wood um, or other material that you like to back paintings with, you can use Gorilla Glue to adhere it to um, to stone, and it should be just fine. All right. What's Gorilla Glue? Uh, it's a, I think it's a polyurethane glue, and you can get it at Home Depot. Yeah, and it expands uh, slightly. So uh, we we usually, when we work with Gorilla Glue, we'll tape it down as opposed to tightly clamping, especially when you're dealing with um, materials that are a little bit thinner and more flexible. Um, the glue itself might warp as it dries, might shrink a little bit as it dries. So if you just tape it enough so that it's um, pressed on there uh, pretty tightly, but not too tight. Then it gives that glue a little play to expand and contract without warping a larger a larger panel um, too terribly. So yeah. Are there uh, materials or techniques that you'd like to try or experiment with that you haven't already? Wow, that's a good question. There's always going to be something. <laughs> uh, we've I, we've recently tried um, acryl gouache, which is like a combination between acrylic and gouache. Uh, we also recently tried casein, which um, is based off of a milk byproduct or a product of milk, and um, watercolor, acrylic. We've, we've tried those, too. There's probably always going to be new surfaces that pop up. Uh, I am really interested right now in painting on um, some of the new... Uh, plastic canvases that are being created for uh, high-tech sailing industry, and um, I'm, I'm fascinated. I can't wait to try painting on something made of carbon fiber or something like that. I mean, there's there's these great new indestructible materials that if you stuck them in a landfill, they're going to be here a million years from now. So why wouldn't we want to paint on that if if will yeah. rot in the sun <laughs> in about ten years? I mean. I, I'm fascinated by the by the way that these could last forever and ever and ever, and uh, maybe they're going to be fun to paint on too. I so I, yeah. I I anticipate we'll find more unusual things to uh, put a paintbrush to in the coming yeah. years, and uh, we're always very excited when a new plastic comes out or a new kind of fiber that's made nothing that we've ever heard of. Joke. Yeah, we used to joke about it a lot when we were in school. Um, we were being taught. Like, we had a hardcore teacher, I, I forget who it was, but we were, like, working with um, traditional panels and cutting the wood. And I think he even had us using, like, a hand crank drill to pre-drill yes. all the holes in the nails. And, <laughs> and you, you always hear about, you know, picking up after yourself and not littering on the side of the road. Because if you throw, if you crumple that piece of plastic wrap or whatever and you toss it there, it's going to last forever. And we'd always say, why the hell aren't we using that stuff? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> trash from Burger King is probably a better painting surface than this this cotton duck canvas here. Like, it's going to last forever. Why wouldn't we choose that? <laughs> one, of the, one of the other cool products that we're really excited about is um, a paper that is supposed to, was made to be an alternative to traditional paper to prevent trees from being cut down. Um, it's called Repap, and essentially it's, um, it's calcium carbonate, so it's stone paper, but the binder uh, is uh, made of a made of a plastic. Um, so the absorbency of it is really ideal. And, and some of our early experiments, we've had a great time painting with it. Um, there's some question about they make they make it uh, what they call photodegradable, so that it doesn't 
you can't throw it on the side of the road and it will last forever like a lot of plastics will. So there's some question as to how durable it is over time. But from my earliest questioning of the company and its, its photodegradability, um, I was told that the paper um, should degrade in sunlight at the same rate as a normal traditional paper would. So it's cool in that it's a, just imagine a normal piece of paper, but that you can actually oil paint on or do watercolor on without it warping and without having to prepare the surface. And um, it'll never uh, degrade on a cellular level like, you know, um, paper products. Yeah. Yep. I won't admit, um, I won't off gas or anything either. So yeah, that was pretty cool. Mm. Pretty good. Yeah. 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 So we're we're into the plastics right now. We're really deeply researching <laughs> plastic paper and how how to find the best one. <laughs> this is sound posh, but we have to figure out a way to pitch it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we have a don't ask, don't tell policy with clients. If they don't if they don't ask what it's painted on, we won't tell them because you know. Everyone likes to hear, oh, this is uh, the finest weave of Belgian linen, you know. But really, in reality, that Belgian linen is not half the surface that a polyester canvas would be um, as far as durability goes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for you, yeah. Because, you, yeah, you're right. People can get a bit precious about it, but, you know, if, mm-hmm. it's, if it's not, uh, it doesn't have that sort of feeling of antiquity about it. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. Um, right, Julio, um, you make a distinction between being original as an artist and being authentic as an artist. Can you explain what you mean by that and why the distinction is important? Yeah. Um, but uh, Originality to me, um, especially the way we kind of see it and define it in, in our culture, pop culture today especially, um, has primarily come to mean something that you've never seen before um, and that hasn't been done before. And I think that creates a mindset, especially in young artists, that um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether or not you have some kind of organic connection to what it is that you're saying in your work or if, it, or if it's welling up out of your life in a natural, meaningful way. But if you create... We used to call it in college the next box of shit, right? And the that box of shit. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. next box of shit. And that was, I'm going to frame this up. It doesn't matter what it is, but you've never seen it before. So, therefore, it has currency in the art market today because it is original. <laughs> so, if somebody's looking at a painting and I run up to them from behind and just tackle them and say, this is performance art, and you've never seen me tackle anybody quite like you've just seen me do it, um, anything can constitute uh, can meet those parameters for originality today, but that does not mean that it's necessarily significant or meaningful um, or have some kind of um, transcendent value. Now, I can't assess transcendent value to my own work. I, I don't think that's possible. But I think over time we, we see things that have lasting and meaningful value and and apply to our lives and, and feel like there are some consequence to us. And I think those often come out of work that prioritizes um, some sense of authenticity. And authenticity, to me, um, really evolves around self-knowledge. And that means craft. Um, that means your own heart as a human being. Um, that means your connection to the means and materials, also the subject matter of your work. What is it that you're deciding is the subject matter? Why does it call you to paint it? 
what's so meaningful about it to you? And how does that relate to your feelings about life in general? Um, these are bigger questions to me because I think that they are transcending. I think that they do uh, touch on, um, on the human experience of finding connectivity to this world, reconciling ourselves to, to like Candace said, you know, being in this world and um, wanting to find something reflecting back to you in it. Um, I think that's important. And, and when you're able to tap into those things, I think you get greater reward, a deeper kind of reward, um, because you really are honoring what you are um, by understanding what you are as an artist, rather than by just seeking to do something original, but that might be arbitrary um, and might have very little actual lasting meaning for you. Um, I think today we live in a world of spectacle, uh, albeit hollow spectacle, and um, it's very easy to create a spectacle, to, to, to make a rock concert or uh, a crazy event in which it appears like there's a lot going on. But sometimes glittering lights are just glittering lights. And I think nobody can create the meaning and the connection in a work for you other than, than yourself, the hard work of the soul that you have to do. I always remember a quote from Vincent Van um, I'm paraphrasing, but he says when he looks at a painting, he likes to see the soul at work in a piece. And that has always um, had great significance for me, is that what, what I'm doing here is a kind of soul work. And if, it, if it's true and uh, meaningful to me, um, then I don't have to try to sell it to anybody else. Um, they, it's likely that they will feel it too. Um, I think we hear that in people's voices when they're talking. Um, when you hear a great story from a, from a family loved one, when you hear a great song or musical performance, I think there are some things that are unspoken that um, just come through in a work. Um, and it's hard to define something that's genuine, but I think we know it when we see it, especially if we um, keep coming back to it over the course of a lifetime. Yeah. And so, okay, so say I'm like a young artist, I'm listening to this, I'm going, yeah, yeah, I get what he's saying about being original and authentic. How do I be authentic? <laughs> well, I think the first time... <laughs> I think that's a great question, and I think a lot yeah, of the terms... It's a tough question, too. Yeah, isn't... Well, I'm asking you because you've been grappling with this for years, do you know what I mean? So I'm just wondering if you had a little tell of, you know, the hair go over the back of your neck or something where you kind of go, yeah, okay. Or it, I don't know. I imagine it's more of a, a process of discarding stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you're right. I think it's both. I, I think early on there's the most turmoil for that because um, because you do feel pressure to make something of yourself, right? Um, to, to If a gallery says, hey, you've got talent, kid. Let's see what you've got. I'll give you a show. That is an incredible amount of pressure, especially... <laughs> if you don't know what the hell you're painting about. And I, I think that what, what Candace and I have realized is that the greatest thing we could ever do in this regard is to make a study of our own life, to make a study of our own propensities and our own passions, um, and to expose ourselves, ourselves to lots of different things by reading and learning and really just be falling in love with life, basically, falling in love with the craft, um, and not chasing other other ideas of what success is, um, other ideas of what great art is, but really taking a hard look at yourself um, and also a sympathetic look at yourself and saying, you know, for some reason, I like this kind of thing. 
and I gravitate towards this kind of thing and and ruminate as to why and investigate that a little bit more and find other like-minded artists and find heroes that represent that in the arts or in other industries. Um, and little by little, what you're doing is you're cultivating your own tastes and you're cultivating your own your own um, uh, habits of thought. And little by little, it's I think it's through the repetition and through becoming familiar with your own life story, your own propensities, your own heroes, that you turn around one day and you just say, look, I have a rich sense of what it is that I like, of what my, I am developing opinions about what um, constitutes value in the things that I consume and in my preoccupations. So finding value in art, finding value in music, finding value in other relationships um, is something to make a study of. And I think you can't get from A to B, from A to C, let's say, without going through B first. Um, and it's only when you do that legwork and only when it's genuine, when you, when you make, when you start falling in love with the things that you love and, and deepening that love, right? You can deepen a love for any passion that you have, whether it's cooking or materials or friendships or, um, whatever hobby you have. Um, those things will guide you, um, to a better understanding of what, what really matters to you, boy. And then once you have that, once you have what really matters to you, I really do believe that the song or the work of art or the sculpture um, is like a flower off of that tree. It, it will just come out of you, out of the overabundance of the heart. Right. I'd, I'd like to add something to that, too. Yeah. Uh, as far as authenticity goes, uh, Huda just talked a lot about um, really exploring your fascinations and and you know, delving into things that you naturally um, are pulling towards anyway. And that is absolutely where it comes from. But what I would like to add to that is you also need to think about sheltering yourself from really strong influences around you. Um, like in the beginning of this podcast, you asked us about, you know, you guys only went to one college. Most people go here and there, and mm-hmm. and then Atelier is this and Atelier that. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like we both decided early on that, you know, we're probably not going to get the greatest painting training just by going to this one place and then, um, you know, struggling in the studio, but we will find our own way, and, and that will be... Uh, authentic. That'll be an authentic journey, and I won't look exactly like this artist or that artist um, by studying under a really strong and um, um, charismatic teacher, per se, or or someone who has a really strong style that I would be copying. Um, right. So, so for authenticity, you have to be careful not to emulate those around you, uh, either on purpose or or just by accident, by like let's say you're going to um, this one art college, and in that art college there's just generally the stigma against painting children or um, floral things or this or that. I mean, there's everywhere you go, there's always a stigma against this one particular genre of work, and that might keep you from authentically exploring something you're thinking of because you're like, oh, that's I can't do that. That's too yeah, easy. Yeah. Uh, or, or that's not hip, that's not cool right now. And, you know, especially with uh, the proliferation of social media, uh, you can get on Facebook or, or Instagram and 
within 10 minutes, you've seen 400 different works of art that people all over the world are doing. And and trends pop up like wildfire on there. Like, oh, Day of the Dead skulls. Oh, now, now everyone's doing this color of flower, this one particular color of flower, you know, like uh, this one particular bird everyone's all into it all of a sudden or, or everyone's painting skulls this year. And it's like, it's, it, 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 it's unbelievable how um, just seeing stuff online for half an hour will, will embed itself into your brain and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're like, you know what, today I'm going to paint a skull and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> and then you get online three months later and you're like, oh my God, why? how did I come out with a skull painting at the exact same time as 14 of my peers? I mean, this is uncanny. <laughs> you know, it, it stuff like that happens all the time and it doesn't mean that you're not making a worthy work of art in any way whatsoever, but um, it's just surprising how uh, how easily influenced we can all be by each other. And so sometimes, for some people, and I would I would count myself as one of them, I I really have to uh, prioritize sheltering myself from a lot of uh, powerful influences in the art world. Yeah, I I was one time uh, speaking at a art college and um, an older gentleman who was in the class and he was in the class with all these um, young art students fresh out of high school and he said you know I'm older and I have several kids and I've had a career behind me now I come to art school and I see every everybody's um, really plugged into the culture of their kind of their age group and um, I ask myself what do I have to contribute as an artist um, to this arena to this art world as as we see it today and um i remember telling telling him that what he has to contribute is that he has a lot of experience and memories um and and life experiences that some of these people may not have and i think in my opinion in my opinion i think that is um just as if not more important than just the mechanical means to execute a technically um, beautiful painting or drawing. Because the foundation of what it is that you're doing with your skill, going back to the Thomas Aquinas thing about the art of rhetoric, uh, what are you doing with that rhetoric, right? And what's it connected to? Is this something real? Is this something of consequence? And um, I, I think somebody always has something to offer. I think skills can be learned. I think you look at many artists throughout history, like Vincent van Gogh, for instance, where you say, this this is not uh, technically up to snuff with a Bougereau, but but you say to yourself, you know, the, the man has heart, and to, to some audiences, he speaks very strongly about something that is significantly real to them. And uh, His talent was being able to express his soul, and that is... That's right. That's, wow. You know. and, I, and I think we always say... Um, you practice being the best. You can only be the best version of yourself that there is. Uh, no one's ever going to be as good as you at being you, right? So for us, we always tell artists, like, embrace what you are. Like, you are the key to being what it is that you want to be as an artist in this world. That You don't have to look to slavishly copy. There's a difference between learning from other artists and emulating them so that you can learn, but it's quite different from really embracing what it is that you do as an artist. And when you find it, you can see it in artists' careers. They just turn this corner where all of a sudden they say, you know what, I'm going to stop with this affect. I'm going to stop um, trying to be an artist that I'm not. And I'm really just going to embrace 
this this frailty, let's just say, this frailty or this part of me that I didn't really like, but now I, it's just who I am and I can't help it. And part of my song means that my voice cracks a little bit in this weird way that only mine does. Yeah, I was going to ask you both about that because what you're saying uh, really requires a person to have to deal with any self-esteem issues. <laughs> because it's like they really have to, like if you say you know, go follow your passions or follow the things that interest you, well, you have to kind of, at some point, you'll, you'll be faced with, well, it's just me, like, only I kind of like it, but nobody else seems to like it, but it doesn't matter because I like it, and, you know, that's enough, and that's what I'm going to do. You know, do you know what I mean? If you have low self-esteem, mm-hmm. I, I think you'd have trouble <laughs> with that. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think, I think you, they can exist together. Um, I think most artists probably work on the basis of this is, priceless, this is worthless, um, and going back and forth on those uh, every 10 minutes uh, throughout a painting, so your your self-esteem is grandiose and pathetic uh, at the same time, um, <laughs> but but you do have to kind of just just trust in the process if, if um, like, if you want to explore something and you go, ah, well, you know, what is this? This is just a silly idea. I mean, I've never heard of anyone thinking of this before. And, and you know, really, like, uh, this couldn't be anything, you know, if I if I thought of it. Um, just, just try to um, turn that voice off <laughs> and then turn on the voice that just says, well, let's just see what this is. Let's just open the door and let's just go down the rabbit hole for a little bit. It's a journey. It's an exploration. It's an adventure. And uh, whatever I find, I find. And that that kind of allows um, yourself, even if you're struggling um, with esteem, uh, to just see what happens and to not judge yourself so much. It's really hard to turn off the the inner um, ass kicking machine. <laughs> uh, really, really hard. And I think every painter goes through that and every artist of every kind, every writer, I'm sure it's just, it's so aggravating. You're at war with yourself most of the time, but, um, but you know, you have to find Zen even in your own loud head. Um, so uh, <laughs> sometimes you just got to turn one voice off and say, you know what? Today I'm I'm the person who's just gonna go down this path. I'm just gonna explore this because why not? You know, it's just as good as the next way, and I feel drawn towards it. So you gotta trust that instinct that is telling you, look into this, explore this. This might be a good idea. And if you find that it's not a good idea, then you trust the next instinct that says, look into this one. No, this is a good idea. I th- I think I'll go this way. And you just have to see. You know, you have to try. Right. Yeah, I think for us the um the um, we, we realize that w- wisdom at this point becomes knowing when to turn and off, on and off some of these spigots, right? So when you, you know you, you you can't just be self-contained either. You can't just say shut the world out completely and be completely isolated from it either. There there's there's a certain measure of, um, of of course doing things and finding your own way. Um, but then there's also um, existence itself and learning from from interacting with the world and also other other people. And I think that's that's for us is where community and other 
uh, people who you who you see something that that is attractive in them that you want. Um, they don't necessarily. Some of my greatest mentors don't necessarily tell me how I ought to behave, but just by their example, how I watch them do things, how I watch them deal with themselves or difficult situations uh, or similar uh, obsessive behaviors like being an artist. Um, if I see them weathering these things with great dignity and wisdom, um, I get attracted to that. I, say, I want that. You know, how, how does this person do that? Because they're not trying to solve the problem of dealing with my own skin for me, but in them I see an example of how they deal with life in their own skin. And I think having heroes, whether it's in books or whether it's around you, um, is super important, especially for us head, head case artists who can often be <laughs> contemplating our own navels too much. Uh, it's sometimes great to step out a little bit, let some light in, let the, let the, uh, let the musty air out, and um, and just hear how other people do things. It might, it might clue you in on some things that will be helpful. For yeah, you, for I have you. another thing to add is that um, as far as, like, thinking up concepts for paintings and, and you know, ideas for shows and stuff, a lot of times today people want you to explain yourself and explain your idea in words, uh, you know, sum up what this painting is all about in three sentences for us, please. We'd like to run it in this magazine. You know, and, and we're visual people. We're running on a different wavelength. Like, it sometimes the, the constant... Um, prodding for for what what is this what what are you seeing in it what are you thinking what's your concept what's your idea tell it to me in words maybe that is stifling a creativity that that you might have a, a vision you might have for a painting um that you don't you don't really know what it is in words but you just feel like there's something there that you need to go after and maybe you won't know what that painting was about in a word form throughout the whole painting you might not know until months later where you're like you know what i feel like to sum it up this this painting was about longing or this painting was about um trepidation or or lots of things but you know it is a visual language and it's it's not always going to collaborate with words <laughs> and so you know don't be afraid of just i don't know what it is but there's something there and i'm and i'm going to go after it right you recently gave uh, a joint talk at the Track conference. Um, it was a, a great talk, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Um, and there were some parts of it that I'd like to ask you about. Um, so the first bit is, and I'll, I'll quote this a little bit, um, we must endeavor to become songbird souls. Let us, in our art and in our lives, pour out the unique song of our existence, adding our voices to the choir. Mm-hmm. And that's lovely, I think. So how important do you think is the life of an artist to the art of the artist? Well, I think I think the life of an artist is very important to the work of an artist, but it uh, doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to have an exciting life. Um, uh, a lot of life is the life of the mind, you know, what... what the life of your emotional connection to the world. Um, it's uh, there's there's some people that are flying around the world all day every day. They've got very exciting lives, but they might um, not be taking it in, might not be letting it change them. Um, whereas 
you know, some people just go for a walk and it's it's the most enlightening spiritual experience of their lives, you know. Uh, it, so so the quality of, of life on paper, it doesn't have to be that that dramatic, but um, it's it's really one soul's um, reaction and interaction with the world, and that, at least in the work that I like to see in the arts, whether it be in music or writing or painting, I'm always very drawn to those who can express their soul um, and their emotional uh, qualities really profoundly. There's some artists that are just stunning at this or that, but but it's the ones that I feel a direct connection to their soul. That's that's the art that moves me most. So that's why in my art and and when I uh, talk to other artists, I always feel like that's the most important part of it is just let that part of you come forward. Let it let it speak. Um, let it be a songbird, you know. Right. And that's what we want. That's what we want to see when we go to look at artwork. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we always we always want to uh, experience a kind of journey. I guess um, we want to be moved when we see and uh, artwork and commune with it. Um, we want to feel that we're rewarded in some way. I think when we spend some time looking at a piece, and that there's actually something there. Um, underneath it all to to kind of <clears throat> pull out of it and, ex- and experience and um, I think that a lot of times um, what we define as an interesting life uh, can often be superficial just looking at where people have been or lived or what they've accomplished um, like Candace said I, I think it's a, I think it's you know it, it is a person reconciling themselves to this world, um, then moving through it and becoming something, um, feel, feeling that movement, that that growing, that wrestling with life, um, and whether an artist can convey that wrestling, that that sense of awe or beauty or angst or whatever it is that's special that they have to share, um, that uh, that is another consideration. Um, a lot of people have sublime thoughts but don't necessarily have the, the connection to the tactile qualities of whatever their craft is to, to convey those, those thoughts. And so um, that connection with all of those things, I think, is if it's there, you know, if you, if you see the knack for it in yourself as a young artist, um, if you see it in others, um, I think it's pretty special. You know, I, I think lots of people have callings for different things. Some people are called to be uh, brain surgeons um, or scientists, and they have a real acuity and a skill at that. Um, and I think some artists, whether it's music or painting or um, write, writing plays, um, if you can find that connection to the materials themselves with the means and that you're able to create a kind of um, seamless pipeline of your feelings and thoughts and your deepest contemplations, um, I think you really, I think that that is fantastic. I mean, that is that is like a precious bird. Um, mm-hmm. A that, better skill. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing, really. It's it's almost 
at the sound of sounding like a complete mystic, it, it's almost magical to me. Yeah, I don't know how yeah. it happens, but some people just have this ability. And uh, I don't think I don't. Th I know a lot of artists, and I don't think that they all sit around and go, "I have this magic ability." God, everyone's so much better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's another bit I wanted to ask you about. This is another little quote from your talk. Um, your creations, no matter how refined or simple, big or small, are important. Uh, they are the manifest assertion of love, a prayer a way for your soul to pine openly to the heavens, to nature, and to consecrate your deepest feelings, longings, and love of life. So, can you explain how art is a, man a manifest assertion of love? Oh, wow. Well, I think, at least in my experience, it is absolutely the result of love. I can't, I can't sit down and, and look at something for hours and paint it um, and feel absolutely nothing for it. I, I fall in love with everything that I paint. I really do. Um, and to pay attention to it that closely, to love every detail and every um, every contour and every color and the way the light fills that object and um, the way it might change from warm to cool. I mean, all of that is an exploration of love for me. So the result of any endeavor to 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 transfer what you're seeing and feeling onto um, a piece of paper or a canvas uh, that that is love manifest for sure. I see it a lot like um, like if you're home and you're in a great mood. I mean, I have to look at things just simply sometimes. Is sometimes I'm in such a great mood that. I'll just start singing out loud. I don't care <laughs> what it sounds like. It sounds horrible, but um, but I'll just start singing out loud. And at that moment, it's a re it's a very real illustration of feeling so strongly or being moved so strongly. I think that's what tears are. I think that's what feeling sorrow um, can evoke is for you to be truly moved, and that 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 like I said, that overabundance in the soul it pours out and it becomes manifest. So I like to look at a painting or a song. Let's just say a painting. It, it's it's love woven into being. It, it is something that doesn't exist. You're taking the invisible, this feeling that's so strong, and now it, it is being woven into physical form right in front of you. And it's being done lovingly because it can't help but be done lovingly because that's, that's exactly what you're feeling. And so to sit there and to contemplate and to look at something for so long, as you know, being a writer, I can't even imagine um, a project that's so sustained over the course of time. Love doesn't necessarily have to look like elation. Um, love, love requires a kind of devotion that sometimes just looks like hard, grueling work. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's even kind of that... It's meditation on it. Yeah. It is. Yeah, and so all, all of those early mystics that would wear the hair shirts or go or, or you know go out into the desert and not eat and fast. I mean, there's a part of making art out of love that has that aspect to it. That, yeah, um, like this is so important that I will slave over these details for months because it is that important to even just get a nod towards yeah. you know how grand its beauty was down on paper. You know, 
Right. And do you think that that's true for all art or just certain kinds of art? Uh, I would say that I would say that it depends. Um, the degree to which this happens can depend on what kind of function the art seems to serve for you and for your culture and your society. So um, there's a lot of people who just, the love for them is not so much placed in um, some kind of personal revelation happening in the act of painting, but it's in having a great career. Um, making enough money to travel wherever they want to. Like, I, and I'm not even being facetious here. I, I think that, like, I, I think there's a lot of um, great illustrators, like Norman Rockwell, for instance, who I, I, I would say that I respond differently to his paintings and his portraits than I would say somebody like Rembrandt. Um, but there's no doubt that there's something jovial and fun and frolicking about his work um, that has some benefit to me in my life. And I'm sure it did to him, or else, or else he wouldn't spend so much time, um, time doing it. Now, I think a better question, or a more uh, difficult question to answer sometimes, is that is this dedication and this suffering happening from love, or something else, <laughs> some kind of darkness? <laughs> <force? laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what I was kind of getting at, because some art is quite disturbing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, if you, gosh, like, like Lucian Ford, for instance, his work gives me a certain feeling. I think his work is very good. I think he's an excellent artist, but that doesn't mean I necessarily like it because I, I feel intensely the pathos that he has in that work. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to feel his pathos, but he's so good at, at getting it across. Um, so, so his art might not be about love per se. His art might be about um, a tangled relationship to the universe, to these people, a coldness. There's something else there for him. And I, I can't say that it's all about love for everyone. Uh, so, you know, every artist is on their journey, their personal path. They have the thing that drives them, that whips them, you know, yeah. Um what what is keeping you up at night? Uh, what is driving you to stand in front of an easel for hour after hour, or to type um, page after page? Is it anger? Is it obsession? Is it hatred? Is it love? Like it it could be any one of these things. It could just be like, ah, oh, you know, I'm really talented with words, and I get paid for this, so that <laughs> drive that could drive me too. You know, um, gosh, there's there's all sorts of things that move people, but. But whatever that driving force is, it's 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 probably better to know yourself, and so so you could be truer to that um, to to that and be better at it. Whatever you are, uh, if you know what it is, you're going to be more likely to get better at it. Yeah. And to add to what Candice is saying is that I I think that um a, a lot of the a lot of artists don't just like every everything in life. I, I don't think that I've never seen a, a human being that was just pure love. I, I've never seen one. I, I think that there's paradox, and I think that there's a, a range, and I think that there's complexities in in human beings. And I I I, I think that the, the the perhaps a better way to look at it is that the opposite of love is not so much hate, but in this regard, it would be ambivalence. 
So to be, yeah. yeah, to be completely, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, not ambivalence, but apathy is, is to be completely apathetic, um, would be the opposite of raging against life or having mixed feelings of, of strange feelings, uh, maybe trauma, um, uh, that would all be intermingled, um, with caring about something, um, caring enough to sit down and even talk about it. Even if you want to trash something, you have to care enough to even have that conversation. Yeah. So, so this, that's why I love the, this idea of wrestling with life because sometimes you do feel a tremendous amount of love. And we've spoken about the great unknown, the sublime. Um, you know, you, you have the Greeks who look at it like the Medusa head, the Gorgon head, right? This, this unspeakable, inscrutable, um, universe and we cannot know it and it can frighten us it can petrify us um, yeah if you dare you to look at it you're, you're going to be turned to stone you know yeah. <laughs> that's right <laughs> who would dare and have, yeah I mean, you have other definitions of life that talk about um, the, the beauty of it you know and I think great works of art like Dante's um, Divine Comedy can take you and give you a window into both where you go down and through it and then you go up to sublime uh, reaches, and I think in art it's uh, it's a little bit <laughs> it's it's always proven difficult for artists to really try to illustrate some sense of that sublime beauty. Um, but I, like I said, I think for the most part, just caring about life it, it might express or betray um, love, uh, uh, love here meaning you you care, you care enough to take the time to even rage at life if if that's the case. All right. Okay, last last one from the uh, track uh, conference. Um, this is another quote. Uh, let life touch you. Let it move you. Let it terrify you and inspire you and create awe in you. Let it in, for it is boundless, boundless, terrifying love. So can you explain about boundless, terrifying love? Well, I think I think when you give yourself to love, it is boundless and terrifying. There is There are no rules and safety nets um if you say i love you forever <laughs> the other person could break your heart with the next word they say i mean the world is like that too you you if you're always loving your heart is always being broken too because you are giving yourself to a to a, to an effort and to a movement of the heart which is absolutely leaving you vulnerable and um, it, that's always going to be terrifying. I don't think anyone ever gets comfortable with putting it all on the line emotionally. And um, yeah. and when when you're making a work of art and you're you're putting that in there, you're you're gonna have to put it up on the wall later, or you you're gonna have you're gonna have to let someone read your books, and they're gonna have their own thoughts, opinions. They're gonna come at it. Um, Maybe maybe they look at it after lunch. They're bored. They're tired, and they're a little frustrated. And they're just like, "Meh, I don't like it." I mean, that's a year of your yeah. life that they just went meh. <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's agony right there. If you yeah, have you're to left bleeding on the floor. You're left that's bleeding. Right. You're like, here's my here's my open bleeding heart on the wall for you, and you're just gonna walk by yeah. it today because mm, I don't really like those colors right now. You know, whatever it is, you have you have to be open to the love and to being 
stomped on because of it um, in, in order to fully take that journey. And I think that's a little bit about it. Yeah. I think I think art also teaches us how to uh, tap into that side of ourselves. And I think that's why artists have always been worried over or or idolized <laughs> the cultures <laughs> because – because, I, I mean, I, when I think back to my life and I think about moments where I was truly, um, let's just say terrified by love, um, I would say one of those, the, one of my first introductions to that was um, was being married. And Candace and I had a ceremony to consecrate our marriage. And what the ceremony did was that it anchored all those feelings and it created a moment in which I could not think about anything else other than this vow that I was going to make to Candace as somebody who I said, out of everyone in this world, I love you and I'm going to be with you for the rest of my life. And what that means to me at that moment, what it could potentially mean, it's as if it's the quiet center of the turning world, right? At at that moment, all of these feelings um, come flooding in and all of your fears come flooding in, uh, the the widest expanses of what you're capable of feeling as a person and thinking as a person um, can all hit you at once. And I think that there are moments in our lives where we experience that. Um, sometimes if we've had family or friends who have passed on um, or if we've felt mortal danger or we have, or, or my brother's about to have his, his third child, right? Uh, a little baby being born into this world and you hold them, you get these moments of transcendence where you're almost overcome by what you have the capacity to feel. And and that can, can in and of itself, be, um, be overwhelming as to elicit a lot of different reactions from you. But yeah. a work of art is an anchor, I think, um, to hold someone's attention to perhaps tap into a little bit of that and I think that contemplating some of these moments in our life, um, if, if, if I'm honest with myself, um, they do happen. And like Candace said, it could happen just on a walk where, where a revelation of some kind, something that was invisible to you, but now, now your conscious has touched upon it. Um, I, I think those are fantastic moments. And they are um, sometimes... Moments where you're not really sure what's happening. You can't get your brain around it, but you get this sense of amplitude that is um, it's really important. It educates your heart. It, it makes your soul bigger, I think, um, because, it, because it means something. It, 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 it's a way to measure your attachment um, to things that you care about and that you value greatly. Um, sometimes it's really scary to do that. I know, I know people that are afraid to show vulnerability in moments like that. So they won't cry or tell you they love you. And that's, it's not always easy for artists to do. And so like Candace said, we, we, we kind of trade in that field of telling you, like, this is how I feel. And I'm going to put it up on a wall and I'm going to let people walk by and judge it as intimately or, or flip as they want to. Flip it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, flip yeah. it as they want to. And that's, that is not easy. That is a we're, really tough. We're either thing. very brave or just love the pain inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've both kind of been talking about um, you loving something else and the vulnerability that's built into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the quote, you're talking about life being letting life in because life is boundless, terrifying love. 
Can you just speak to, you know, your experience of that? Like, of, is, uh, the, the, the reason it stood out to me was, well, terrifying love is, you know, it's, it's a nice j- joining together of two words that don't normally go together. Uh, certainly my experience of love, the sort of love that comes in from life um, with that kind of intensity and unexpected kind of ferocity, um, so that's what stood out to me. So, what what's been your experience of that? Um, I I I've had a couple experiences where I have felt that. Um, I my brother was deployed overseas um, in Afghanistan, and he had a. Um, there were a few times where I would get phone calls from him. Excuse me. <clears throat> there was a few times where I got phone calls from him, and I could tell that he knew. Wow, sorry, John. I'll try no, to get through this. No, no, no. <clears throat> take as long as you like. <clears throat> and uh, we both knew that this might be the last time that... Uh, It might be the last time that we talk to each other. And um, another time where um, he had lost a good friend. And the feelings that it produces and still does produce um, can be um, terrifying in that uh, you almost fear what will, will become of you if you lose contact with this person or even with this life that you have and I think that is deeply related to growth as well because to become something new to grow into something to shed the old and to be reborn as a new person to have revelation let's just say self-realization requires kind of death of the old self and sometimes losing the old things that we've grown familiar with um, it's too much to bear. And um, another time that I felt something like that was uh, watching my niece in a hospital um, with tubes um, from uh, an attempt at her own life. And um, I remember walking up to the hospital and not knowing how Candace and I would be able to deal with this yeah. if we lost her. And I think those kinds of things, um, there are moments where um, you really feel so small and and um, you can't really, you don't really have a good grasp of what's happening exactly, um, but it's in retrospect that you feel as though you were just this little mite um, on a precipice. And... I think in um, probably both of our works, um, you can perceive a little bit of that, um, even with composition and themes of someone um, being on the edge of something very large, um, somewhat unknowable. Um, and uh, I think something that's become a very... Yeah. 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 Very good. Yeah, it's 
it's a bit like those kind of moments, certainly in my experience, anyway, those moments, it's almost like you look down and you go, oh, I'm standing on a precipice, and I've been standing on a precipice my whole life, and I just never really noticed it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't realized how precarious uh, existence was <laughs> until that moment, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's in that moment when you kind of realize that and that you've always been that. That's where the, the and that you haven't fallen. To me, mm-hmm. that's, that's where you kind of, you get this charge of this terrifying love that you're speaking of. Yeah. Because that's what's, that's what's keeping you there. That's what's keeping you from falling off the edge, you know? Yeah. Very good. Right, completely different direction now. Uh, Candice, <laughs> <laughs> you recently gave your collectors an opportunity to buy from you directly yeah, before mm-hmm. you began working at the new gallery exclusively. How did well, it go? It, it went very well, actually. It was it was wonderful to uh, work with some clients directly. I mean, before I signed up with um, my current gallery, which is uh, Richard D'Amato Gallery in Sag Harbor, New York, um, I had been working with a whole bunch of different galleries and selling out of studio because I was not um, signed on with any particular gallery uh, in their stable. So I did interact with a lot of clients and a lot of galleries. And um, I wanted to do this uh, first and foremost, because I enjoy working with clients on a personal level. I like knowing who owns the work and how they've liked it. And you don't always get that um, with a gallery. They, they for good reasons, business-wise, like to keep um, artists and collectors at an arm's length from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but another reason why is because artists always have a lot of works that are not so formal as um, as they will show in galleries, um, the the sketch or um, a quick painting or a painting in a different style than they might typically do, or of a subject matter that is not um, that they're not maybe known for that sort of thing. Yeah. But these can be really great works in their own right, even if they're um, simple or whatever they are. They they might not be what the artist is uh, quote unquote known for. Um, so I, I have a lot of these works in my studio. I know, uh, almost every artist I've ever met has uh, stacks of these kind of works in their studio and you feel kind of like you don't have a place for them because they're not so formal as ones that you send to the galleries. Um, but they are absolutely lovable, beautiful, um, and works with a lot of integrity. So... So sometimes, um, like, I, th- I thought that that would be a good way and a good place to just show those um, and have them on the market uh, for this brief period of time where I don't usually. It's kind of like a sneak peek into my, uh, the, into the walls of my studio, what, what I have yeah, uh, yeah. around here. Yeah. 
just as a kind of general question to you both, like where do you think the where do you see the art business going? Because it's come up like a lot on on as a, we've chatted with different artists, you know. Like on one end, you've got somebody like um, Ashley Longshore who doesn't use galleries at all, who sells directly from Instagram very successfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the other end, you've got people who are very focused on that my life as an artist hasn't started until I'm accepted by a gallery, or mm-hmm. and then there's you know there are other artists who want to go to museums and go mm-hmm. into more institutionalized and the, like when you started you both of you started like if you think back to then as to where the art business is now it's it's not it's a huge it's come it's changed a lot you know yeah um yeah. so how do you think it's going to go in the future like where do you see it going i think that um galleries are starting to need to downsize their uh, physical brick and mortar space. Um, I I could see a lot more art sales going online and uh, art being bought uh, sight unseen physically, uh, but just for digital images, I mean, a lot of it is going that way right now, which I don't particularly love because um, a work of art feels so much different physically in front of you than, than it does in a digital reproduction. Uh, it's it's a poor it's a poor reproduction of it really. Um, but I do see that as having huge upsides too because, you know, I I have I have people who buy my work uh, from England and they they're buying it off of a photo online and when it comes to them they're like it is exactly what I hoped it would be, and you know I'm so glad because I couldn't come out there and see it in person on your last show yeah. that you had. Um, and I'm like that. I live I live in a small town. Uh, I I can't go to every big show that's happening out in New York right now, and so it really does enable um, the buyer to be able to purchase from anyone's studio anywhere in the world without having to physically travel. Uh, so I, I see all of this upside in it, and I do see a, a terrible downside as well, where things that just reproduce well in magazines are going to be more well-known than things that don't reproduce well in magazines. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's tenuous and I don't really know what's going to happen in the art world but I do I do know things are changing and they're changing fast I, that whole selling off Instagram thing is it's a big deal it's there's people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars just selling uh prints on Instagram and they'll do it in a weekend you know it's it's wild what can happen on there but it also takes over your life you have to devote your life to social media and what effect that has on you as an artist is very powerful and it can be really detrimental to your artwork so it is a give and a take like I chose recently to sign up with a gallery to be in their stable for the first time in my artistic career because I chose this year to say you know I want to step back from the business side of art a little bit the social uh, media marketing a little bit and I, I want time to just really delve into my ideas again and to feel to not feel that influence and that tug um from what what is everyone doing right now and and what's going on out there and what shows are happening right now like i i want to pull back and and climb the mountain and and go on a journey all by myself for a little while 
And I I feel like it simplifies things quite a bit if I have a gallery working to promote me while I go on that journey. Yeah. And yeah. at other times, I've felt like, you know, this is really the way to do it, do it myself, have a personal connection, market it myself. I can touch all these different places and I'm um, I am signed to nobody. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm free, ultimate freedom here and maneuverability. So there are there are just so many ways to run your art business right now that it is it's just hard to see which way is the best yeah. but there are many ways that can work right yeah it's interesting because when we did start i think i think we probably were able to get some of the first benefits of a more seamless um internet age of self-promotion mm-hmm. and getting your work on the web um because we we had just moved to a very rural area where there was no immediate art scene or community, uh, and and that's when things really started happening for us. And it was all through magazines and online presence. Um, but I do see how even since then, um, you know, at that time there it seemed as though there were um, these kind of mountains, and if you were able to climb at least one or some of them, then you had made it onto what you felt was a bigger stage. I think things have become a little bit more balkanized, and there are pockets now um, where certain communities don't even really interact much with each other, but they're all artists, and they're all trying to figure out how the web is going to work for them. And I, I think whenever you have time of a lot of change like this, it's um, it's a time for opportunity, and it's an intermingling of a lot of feelings. Some people are really frightened by it, and some people really embrace it. Uh, I think a lot of that is going to depend on what your own propensities and skill sets are. Um, on the one hand, I see a lot of artists who are taking full advantage of it, and you are able now to become your own marketing machine and um, to, to deal with your own clients and create inventive ways to keep them apprised of what you're doing. And then there are some other artists who don't want to do that because of how taxing it is. And that they don't they don't have a particular knack for it. It's very difficult for them um, to just put their headspace there and to become yeah. to 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 say I'm going to take charge of responding to every comment on Facebook and every comment on Instagram and every comment on my blog. Um, it takes a lot of work to do that, and, and all the correspondences that are required from uh, clients. Candace and I have been on both sides of doing that ourselves and then doing it with a gallery. Um, and my feeling is that eventually galleries are going to catch up too. I think right now they're in a place where a lot of them are downsizing or going out of business. Um, some of them don't know quite how to meet this new um, internet demand, where to market exactly, how to coalesce and be effective in the marketing. Um, but I think they're going to figure it out. And I think you're going to have a mixture of people being their own um, source of marketing to some degree. Um, but I think there's also going to be galleries out there that are get savvy to this and that might be able to do that for those artists who don't wish um, to really be that involved in the, the daily social media, the daily yeah. timeline feed stuff, because it is taxing. And Candice said, for some artists, it can be a complete detriment to your concentration mm-hmm. required to just make... Plus, you have to pretend that, like you're a egomaniac you know, while you're in your studio, you're like, well, you know, this might work out. This might be, this might not work out. This is, this is pretty good. This is, this is terrible. But then on social media, you have to be like, here's my, here's my latest masterpiece. You know, <laughs> you have to 
She has to show confidence and just put it out there as if the only thing that's important in the whole world is is the latest brushstroke you did, and that is really hard for me to do. I I just I can't stand it a lot of the times. <laughs> But I can see it. I can see it as if, if you're talking to a young artist today who feels like they have no access to some of to gain access to some of these bigger galleries. I could see right now as being just a wonderful time of opportunity, and it's an opportunity you have to take. When Candice and I first started, we did everything under the sun to to try to get our names out there somehow. Yeah, yeah um, to be noticed a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but then over time, as you get experience, I think it's going to be like anything else. I really do. I, I feel like it's going to be a mixture of what am I capable of and what am I good at. And if this is, you know, if I'm doing so much social media and it's so taxing that my art is suffering, well, <laughs> then you you might have to switch your priorities around. And find someone or some organization or join or be part of a group um, or be part of a gallery or whatever. Somebody who has found a way to be able to do this for you. So I've talked to artists that have come up to me and they said, like, you know, F the galleries and F what they do and don't you agree that they suck? And then I, I always come back with, well, not all of them. Like, does your gallery suck? Like, do they do anything? <laughs> like, like some galleries do a lot for you that you're not willing yeah. to do yourself. So I think it has to be all on an individual basis. I, I don't think there's any, like, hard, fast rule that I would tell anybody, like, no, man, go at yourself. Or, no, 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 you got to go to a gallery. That's the only way to be known. I don't think any of those axioms are really holding true for everybody right now. I, I think it's I think it's pretty exciting time. Yeah. Okay. Um, Candice, what, what's been the most moving picture for you to make? Oh, wow. I think, I think there's many works that have been, uh, big journeys, but the two that were probably the hardest, um, most difficult emotional journeys to go through, um, was one of my early works, uh, known as, uh, Dementia. Hmm. And that is a painting of an elderly woman, and she's standing in front of a landscape of cold, orange-colored weeds and an icy river. And um, there's just there's just no hint of humanity anywhere. It's it's real barren and and uninviting and and very frightening. And I I painted that. Um, work after spending a year and a half um, with a woman who was losing her mind. And I was hired originally to teach her art lessons by a very well-meaning niece of hers who had the money and and thought, you know, um, let's give this a go. She's suffering from Alzheimer's and perhaps activating her mind with... um, with new new learning and art and creativity will 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 keep my my aunt here uh for a little longer and it didn't work and it was just terrifying um i at the same time i was leave i was losing my grandparents um to the same illness right. and i had already lost uh, two other grandparents to the same illness and i have seen firsthand the horror of it um, over and over again. And like my grandfather, when he got Alzheimer's, he he turned into a very violent 
unhappy man and um everyone acts differently but but you're watching someone disappear before your very eyes and they're frustrated and they can't tell you and you have no idea um what's happening it's just the most terrifying disease i can imagine and i wanted to paint something that um that spoke about that that terrifying unknown empty lonely place and just looked at it and um so that painting took me probably over a year and a half to finish and it was just emotionally difficult the entire time uh, because i was dealing with really the loss of this woman who i knew um but also all these other really important people in my life who who she represented for me and the second painting which was a journey like that was one named uh grace it's a very uh large painting of a red-haired young girl and she's leaning against a rock in the woods and she's got a little dog in her lap and her feet are buried in in the um in the forest floor and she's all alone and that painting is about a girl i met who was um who was dying of a really rare disease um she was blind and her movements were awkward and she was becoming mentally disabled day by day um and and she had the most joyful and serene countenance and she had so much grace um that that it was very inspiring very moving um unimaginably difficult uh to deal with for her family but she she seemed to have a way through it which which helped everyone around her deal with it as well and that 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 was was a miracle to see that and it was so devastating as well and it's like this is a girl who'll never know her first kiss you know yeah um and she's she's okay with it and she's not okay with it and that life is full of that where where um you don't have a choice other than the way you get through it the way you view it and respond to it life will throw all sorts of things at you and the only thing you can do is have a reaction to it um to say you know what i'm i'm going to do something beautiful with the time i have or i'm going to be a wretched a wretched hater <laughs> because this is unfair <laughs> um, and and sometimes the worst tragedies bring out the most mm-hmm. beautiful um expressions from people and she was someone who proved that to me and if i if i ever had to go through um an illness like that i would just to have an ounce of what she had um in her grace and composure about it at, as a young teenager i just can't imagine you know that would be wonderful yeah so that was a very difficult painting as well and um so it took a long time the the really emotional paintings usually take me a lot longer right okay and and Julio what about you what's been the most uh, moving picture for you to make 
Um, I would say there's two pieces that come come to my mind, and the first one of those is a painting uh, that I actually did recently. Um, it was called Firestarter, and it depicts a young redhead boy who's standing in front of a wildfire. Yeah. Um, and for me, there's a um, brooding aspect to this piece. Um, he's silhouetted um, almost almost dark completely, and uh, it's ca- kind of hard to tell, and it's really unimportant what's happening behind the flames other than to see it kind of trickling out into the distance. And this piece was based off of um, a combination of a couple of things. It was... Um, it was based off of a young guy that uh, Candace and I met, and this was one of those cases where we both looked at looked at somebody and said, <laughs> "Oh man, paint this guy, this kid." You know? <laughs> I claim I'm fine. He had a he had a very striking face that um, evoked a lot in, in, in me. There's just something about the texture of people's personalities, uh, even a look that they have, that reminds you of something. And for me, there was something very um, wild, almost dangerous um, in this kid's eyes. Um, and as an artist, of course, you're you're intrigued. So um, we got together and we spent a little time with him. He was a friend of one of our nieces. So um, we come to find out um, that his life story really makes sense with why we have this feeling for him. But more importantly, I think I think people and places can be portals um, to access parts of your mind and of your memories that you might not even be aware of until you see them. And for him, he reminded me a lot of a friend I had growing up who had a very mercurial character. Um, I was very close with him, and it reminds me very much of a Holden Caulfield um, where we would spent a lot of time together and he was going through a lot of difficult stuff in his personal life and it made him um it made him uh potentially there was always (laughs) there was always this potential for violence underneath everything including play and um and the kind of collegiate uh, quality that you have with friends at school um we would go on adventures like tom sawyer kind of things where we'd um, have rock fights and and uh, drive around uh, parts of Los Angeles just for hours on end, just talking about life, getting into trouble, getting in fights with people, or going to parties, that kind of thing. And I always I, I always felt like it was um, one of those Dore um, illustrations where Virgil is guiding Dante through through the rungs of hell. You know um, <laughs> that, that there was this. There was this spiritual guide, so to speak, that was this friend of mine who seemed a little bit more savvy to the ways of the world, um, and he was going to edify me and show me things, and he really had a different handle on life than I did. I think things were, um, they were not so clear, um, they were not so boxed up for him, um, and I was always kind of, I think there was a part of me that always wondered what would ever come of this guy. He's just so conflicted and so deeply angry, I think. Um, and we went up one, one of these days on one of our adventures. There was a fire that broke out around my the city where I grew up. And it had swept across the Glendale Hills, and you could see Los Angeles in the distance. 
So, of course, we got in our car and we went up there and we said, we're going to see this fire. I don't care what the cops do or say because they were blocking off all the roads. And we just snuck up into the woods. We, we went up this drainage canal and um, got up there amongst the smoldering, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of chaparral that had just been completely nuked by this fire. So it was me, him, and this other guy. And we went up there and... Uh, you kind of have one of those moments where you're just looking out at all this devastation and it's night and you see the twinkling of the distant lights. And I think one of the things that um, that kind of disturbed me, but I know that it struck me deeply, was looking at him and this kind of this kind of vandal quality that he had. It's like he took joy in seeing kind of thing. And I, I think at a young age it leaves an indelible mark, and that is that um, – not everybody thinks like you do, and seeing the way our lives are turning out um, as you grow older, um, you realize that some of those things um, are indicators of just a kind of um, a really big, um, like we always say, standing on the precipice of something. Well, I, I, I kind of felt like this painting was an illustration of that. Um, where you have somebody really standing on a potentially dangerous precipice, um, and you're not exactly sure what it is. Uh, that's that's those are my memories that I bring to the piece. Yeah. Uh, but what's important to me in a painting, I think, is to leave it open enough so that a viewer can come to the piece and still feel its significance, but um, bring their own associations to it. So I don't require that people know that about the piece, but. Um, it definitely it was a driving factor be, behind it. It really evokes a lot for me. Um, another piece that I always look fondly on and just see it as particularly poignant for me is a piece I did early on, and that was, um, uh, gosh, I think it, uh, the title of it was Empire, and it was uh, a painting of Candace standing in front of power lines that uh, we lived nearby when we lived um, in Orange County. And um, I think the reason I love that painting so much is because growing up in the Los Angeles area, um, my life consisted of a lot of um, traveling around different parts of pretty much a a wall-to-wall kind of cityscape. Uh, You know, you have these shopping malls and power lines and freeways and buildings all catching um, certain qualities of light. And for me, the sunset light was always um, tied in with going out for the night, going on on some kind of adventure, whether I was very little or as I got into my teenage years. Um, and as I got older, I think it always kind of signified the passing of time of late night conversations with family, grandparents, friends. Um, there was always something very soothing about it and very regal. And to capture that light onto objects like power lines or the sides of buildings or the side of somebody's face. Um, It may sound strange, but the light itself um, felt like it was a portal. You you know, it kind of blows out the back and it connects you to a million different feelings and associations. And for me, um, I I related utterly to my life and experience in Los Angeles. Um, And then, you know, my new life with Candace as being a young husband, um, having this budding relationship with somebody that I love dearly, um, to see her now washed in this same light, um, 
to see her looking out and contemplating um, something that's so large and the, I think it was the abstract silhouettes that I really I really was drawn to. I really started becoming obsessed with that. They they kind of felt like ruins to me. Yeah. And so there's a kind of lingering sweetness to ruins and silhouettes of the like that um, that I love. I can't help it. I I really do love things that have been built and then discarded, and uh, they create these layers of history. And so here's this person kind of making their way through this history and in a way symbolizing. Um, a human being becoming something, um, uh, you know, moving moving through this world and um, being on the cusp of some some kind of their own revelation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but that connection, you know, that that feeling connected to that human warmth amidst this kind of um, vast landscape, I, I, I've always loved that. Okay, lovely. Um, okay, this is my last question. And there's a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and I don't mind who answers first, whoever can think of the, uh, you know, who's ready. Um, if there's one thing you could pass on to future generations, what would it be? <laughs> I'll, I'll start, I guess. I would say that in light of in light of the world today and the way um, the way art is consumed and the way communities are affected, I think, by technology and cultures affected by um, our modern Internet age and how we congregate, consume art, communicate with each other, um, I, I think that there's a lot of trends towards retreating into the mind and um, focusing on the surreal. And I have absolutely no problem with that. I think that's a wonderful thing. But I do feel like to omit life itself from flooding in and educating your senses and capturing your heart and falling in love with its influence and letting life itself change you. So not just the impression of things, but the things themselves. An actual human being on the other side of your canvas looking at you, breathing, talking to you, another human being on the other side of a relationship, not just a text message, but a person who you, who you must confront. You have to deal with each other's physicality as well as consciousness um, and, and experiences that you go on, um, that you allow life to touch you and move you in such a way that it that it's informs your artwork and it informs your conceptions about how you think about yourself and the world. It will affect your art. And I think without it, um, I think art can become rather dull, pedantic, repetitive, or very limited because we end up just painting the insides of our own brains. I think, I think it's very easy to say that, um, to feel nowadays that you can just dismiss those aspects of connectivity with with your very own life um, and feel like you're getting away with it because we have all these other ways to circumvent actually having to talk to a person, to go and walk with somebody, to actually <laughs> smell somebody's breath, right? Like all those things. Or, or, <laughs> or to do things that are scary, like go visit someone in the hospital or watch somebody deteriorate in front of you. 
um, it's it's much preferable sometimes to turn your head from these things and resort to a certain amount of escapism. And I think what we have a lot of today is ready forms of escapist um, technology and shows and activities. And not that there's anything wrong with doing that every once in a while, but when it comes to the core of your artwork and what you're saying, um, I think we have to dance with life. I, I, I think we have to take an account um, and learn from the greatest teacher, and that is, um, you know, nature itself. You have to look out into the world. It's the core of all of the great sciences, all of the great thinkers of the Renaissance and of history, um, even alternative communities um, that are deeply connected to the land and to nature and the streams. I think they all understand that at some point you can only be so um, closed off um, to, to something that's far greater than you, and that's existence itself. And so philosophically, emotionally, personally, whatever the case is, I think there, I think it's really important for artists to not forget that, that we can ultimately play games with rhetoric, um, or we can start trying to use our skills and our rhetorical devices to actually speak about something that matters to us and that has some kind of consequence to other people that have to walk around in this earth too. Okay, very good. And uh, Candice, you've had lots of time to think about it now. (laughs) 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 All right. Uh, My advice for future generations is something that I, a little saying I have actually up on my studio wall. Savor and serve. And the savoring, it's that... This is your life. These are your moments passing. And if you don't um, take enjoyment, uh, if you don't stop to admire that blooming flower as you pass it by, um, that's your loss every time. And, And 